Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. My name is Margaret De Leon, PhD student and junior fellow at Massey College. Today, we are joined by Adrian De Leon, author of Bundok, a hinterland history of Filipino America. Adrian is an assistant professor of U.S. history at New York University and Farley Distinguished Visiting Scholar of History at Simon Fraser University. He is an expert in the histories of the Philippines and global Filipino migration, U.S. imperialism across the Pacific and Asian American politics, and has also written broadly about food, popular culture, and migrant music. Adrian was also a junior fellow and Don of Hall at Massey College. Welcome, Adrian, to the JCR podcast, and uh, we are so thrilled to have you back at Massey. It is good to be back. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. While I was uh, reading through your book, I was curious to learn about why you chose the term bundok as the title of your book. Um, I understand that the term is refers to um, like a mountain or hinterland in Tagalog. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what does bundok mean to you and what is its significance in your book? I really appreciate the question because I get to talk to you, a fellow Filipino, about it, so I think we can go in a little bit. Um, I think just as a title, there is a particular power to having a native word as a title of, you know, hopefully what would become a major book in U.S. history, Philippine history, U.S. immigration history, and make readers of U.S. history especially productively uncomfortable with having to reckon with a language that is as American as it is Philippine. And so, like you mentioned, bundok signifies the mountains and the hinterlands. And why I wanted to center the hinterlands, especially in thinking about the histories of the U.S. and the Philippines, is that we often think of the histories of empire, histories of international relations, and the histories of immigration through these neat closed containers called the nation state. And so it is the relationship between this thing called the Philippines and this thing called the United States and the people who move from point A to point B. I argue that's a really intellectually and politically impoverished way of thinking about the relationship between not just both countries, but really an empire and its colony, which it colonized through the Spanish-American War in 1898, Um, And then through the Philippine-American War in 1899, and this year is the 125th anniversary of the Philippine-American War, so this is particularly important to talk about. But the Bundok actually entered the English language, and we now know it as the Boondocks. It's not a coincidence that it sounds like the Boondocks, because the word first entered the English language when these American soldiers invaded the Philippines and nominally were supposed to help Filipino revolutionaries overthrow Spain, and then we're part of this really genocidal war against native people in which a million or so people died um, from starvation, from warfare, etc. And what U.S. soldiers and administrators felt when they entered the Philippines was a sense of bewilderment of not just the fact that they knew nothing about this place, but the fact that this place was really in their imaginations as you know, a settler colonial empire a frontier that the United States had yet to expand into. 
And so one of the things they were learning from the Tagalogs and from the Tagalog language was the most recalcitrant and really insurgent spaces in the island of Luzon, which is one of the major islands of the Philippines in the north, was the northern hinterlands. And that people from the Tagalog areas called that place the Bundok. And it is a place that came to signify both for Tagalog nationalists and bourgeois mestizo intellectuals, but also U.S. soldiers, U.S. officials. It came to signify a place that was backwards in time, savage, a no place. And so it sort of came to signify both a frontier and its ignoble savages. And so that word entered the English language as the boondocks. And so when I was, you know, promoting this book and talking about this book in the United States, especially, a lot of folks who came from the American South were kind of productively shocked and surprised to think, oh, that's where the term comes from, Mm -hmm. that it comes from this, really this trace, this haunting of a colonial war that has been all but forgotten in American memory. And it still continues to inform the ways that we think about, you know, spatial formation and racial formation in the United States and in North America until the present day. Like we call, you know, anywhere outside, you know, for Toronto bougie cats like me, right? Like we call anywhere outside of Toronto, like the boondogs, right? Those are the boonies. And that's the fact that 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 is the way that we come to understand a relationship between cities, the metropoles and these hinterland spaces to me was a productive way to frame this conversation really about indigeneity and how it impacts U.S. immigration and U.S. empire. And I'm curious about um, what kind of initially inspired you to to write this book um, and how your own personal or family histories kind of intersect with the themes and stories that you chose to explore. I'm tempted to talk about it in terms of the intellectual route, but I want to actually talk about it through my family history. And the idea sort of coalesced really in my family home because my mother's side is from northern Luzon and finds its roots in, you know, the shores of the Ilocos, the Cordilleras. And my father's side is from the Mandela Bay region, so the Bataan Peninsula, which has seen a lot of, you know, colonial warfares and is really part of this sort of like almost machismo kind of nationalist Philippine history. And the thing that happened in my home is that my father really wanted to make sure that, number one, his children, like myself, learned English. Um, But number two, if there was going to be a native language spoken at home, that it would be Tagalog. And this never clicked to me, this sort of strange relationship I had with this language, until I started picking up on the fact that there were Tagalog adjacent sounding things that my grandmother was saying on the phone to herself to my mother and then my mother back to her that I could not understand like Tagalog and Ilocano which is the language that she was speaking are mutually unintelligible actually and so I thought okay what's going on in the home that I don't have access to this inheritance and It came out of, you know, I think my father's relationship with other native languages to which he didn't have access. He wanted everything to, you know, be transparent and and, and be accessible to his more Manila Bay sensibility. And so I ended up learning Ilocano during graduate school in the year after I was Donna Paul here at Massey. And, but I was living in Hawaii and I was learning Ilocano and I came back to visit and I started speaking Ilocano to my grandmother and I realized that 
there was this entire linguistic life world that I never had access to that I now could learn and share in and speaking with her and realizing how it subverted a lot of really the colonial relationships that took place in my own home between these two languages between Manila and the hinterlands right and I realized right my grandmother is from the Bundok mm-hmm. right and that's when really like I was a pro- I was edging towards that project but that's when really when the project clicked and it clicked because as a historian who was trained in US Empire and Japanese Empire histories and thinking about the Philippines I started to become attuned to the fact that we often take for granted Filipino immigration history as something that is in English and Spanish and in Tagalog. You learn Tagalog if you want to be a Filipino or Filipino-American historian. But if you actually go into the archives, you go into the oral histories, you go into really being geographically specific about where both the migrants that go move to the United States are from, but also the racial images mm-hmm. that move to the United States the vast majority are set in these hinterland spaces like north of Luzon and yeah. so for me that's when it clicked right this is an a history in the Ilocano language mm-hmm. which is the lingua franca of the north because of different trading histories and things like that and so in a lot of ways the the, the familial scaled up to the archival I think is really what shaped the project yeah, yeah. I like what you said that um, uh, you had to kind of learn Ilocano so that you can have a full picture of right. uh, what you were researching for this book. I'm curious um, about what what did that look like for you um, preparing for Pundo? Yeah, I think it, it's a good question because the, the book is actually mostly about the 19th century. There were hundreds of oral histories that I read which are kept in Seattle in a place called the Filipino-American National Historical Society and they were done in English because the interviewers were speaking in English and I was hearing the cassette tapes and I could hear Lakota accents. Mm-hmm. I think there is a way that in the academy, in especially in history departments, that and literature departments, humanities departments, to really prize text, that there's an extractive relationship between linguistic acumen and historical writing. And I'll be very specific here in that um, I once had a mentor, former mentor, who's no longer a mentor, um, that I dropped halfway through the program because of this issue, actually, tell me that there's no point to learn Ilocano. You don't need to speak the local languages to ask, quote-unquote, interesting questions, which I think is false. Area studies, for all its issues as a colonial project, one of the things that it attunes us to is region and language and commitment to place. and learning a language that is outside of your own linguistic world to do this kind of research even if you don't find sources in this language it's a perspective i found ilocano language sources in places like um chicago um in places like Hawaii, even spain but that's not what was important what was important was recognizing the fact that as these migrants and these histories are moving through these spaces they brought with them an Ilocano life world mm-hmm. that has been all but obliterated, not just by English, but mm-hmm. by Tagalog as well. Yeah. And so even if I'm reading an English language interview conducted with an Ilocano, I can hear how that northern, northern world, that hinterland world is shaping the way that 
they articulate their experiences in somewhere like as far flung as Montana or mm -hmm. California or Alaska or Hawaii. And to this day, about 70% of Filipinos in Hawaii speak Ilocano, not Tagalog. And that comes directly out of these histories that I was writing, these plantation histories from Northern Luzon to Hawaii. And so even if the folks I was in, you know, in community with were not telling me about this deep history of the past, I could still have some kind of resonant access to just how Ilocano a place like Hawaii was. Um, I'm curious about how you reconcile with the fact that if these interviews are taking place in English uh, with the Ilocano people, like um, how do you know mm -hmm. um, that they're um, depicting their experiences? No, that's a good question because I also had to think about the fact that it wasn't just that they were doing these interviews in English, it was that they were doing these interviews probably 40, 50 years after they were migrant workers. These were elders when oh. they were done. And so I had to really think productively about the place of memory, yeah. you know, and the way that it shapes the way that people tell their stories. Um, but I also really drilled down into a perspective that I think is afforded to us as humanity scholars by a philosopher named Jacques Derrida. He was Algerian and French, and he founded this, this school of thought called deconstruction, post-structuralism, etc. And one of the things that he attuned us to was that, among other things, you can never have access to this idea of pure interiority, pure truth. Because for him, all truth and all interiority, all subjecthood, all character is articulated every single time you say something, you utter something. Yeah. Every single time you participate in this thing called language, which is, especially English, is always finicky. As much as that complicated the notion that oral histories provide us some truth, which I never really believed, that was actually liberating because I could then think more productively about not necessarily what these interviewees were saying to the interviewers, but about that speech act itself. The fact that like, okay, they're, 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 they're talking to a second generation about their experience. They're remembering their hometowns more than their homelands, right? And I'll give you one example that was really productive. Um, there was an interview with a man that I go into extensively in the book in chapter six. And the man was named uh, Tio de Lebranjo. And he was from Northern Luzon. And for two, about two years he was traveling he was a young man, all these guys were going out for adventure, right? And, 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 and they wanted to become migrant workers because they wanted to see the world, but also they were being pushed out of their homeland because of plantation capitalism. And so he's traveling all over the place and he's somewhere in Western Washington state and he's sitting on a pile of logs and he's recounting this to the interviewer. He sat on a pile of logs and he finally opens the letters that he got from one of his cousins back home in the Philippines. And he opens and he started crying. And it was written in Ilocano, right? And he was, I was thinking about the different ways that he was like registering this. He was saying it in English, talking about an Ilocano connection and an Ilocano letter, talking about those emotions and then realizing how lonely he was in diaspora. And so the thing that he did was that he joined these nationalist organizations in which they would teach migrants Tagalog to prepare these migrants to become a future Philippine subject of an independent Philippines. Mm -hmm. And so 
a lot of these Ilocanos actually learn how to be Filipino in a really violent way, which is through alienation and loneliness, but also then through nationalism abroad. They had to learn an idea of the Philippines that really wasn't theirs. And so in my book, one of the things I did was I wanted to capture that discomfort that these migrants must have felt as they were flitting between different linguistic worlds. And so what I did was I, in the main text, because there, there's the text and then there are the end notes, at some point I just start writing in Ilocano. And I write in English what he says to the interviewer in English, but I start writing in Ilocano my analysis. Um. And I tell the reader before I start doing that, that you're going to face some of this discomfort because this is going to be illegible to you mm -hmm. and you'll have to flip back and forth between mm. the end of the book. And then there's this passage where he talks about that it was abroad in America they learned how to be Filipino and then he learned Tagalog and then I write in Tagalog. And then, then they have to like, it messes with like the reader's like experience of the text, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's like a small way that I would think in the writing of the book I wanted to pay homage to mental and emotional somersaults that these migrant workers had to make in order to adapt into an idea of being Filipino that was being imposed upon them out of necessity and not necessarily the ideas of Ilocano-ness that they were bringing to the diaspora. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that ties back to what you mentioned earlier uh, about productive um, discomfort yeah. um, and this um, format in the book is kind of a microcosm of what these um, migrant workers had to to face. Absolutely, and I think the the the, the early feedback I've been getting from the book, which is a compliment, um, is that it is dizzying to read. Mm. In that it jumps between so many different locations, different languages, etc. And I'm like, yeah, because everyday life under colonization <laughs> is really dizzying, and the kinds of ways that both commodities and people who were commodified as workers, the ways that they were jettisoned really across an ocean into places that were unfamiliar to them, onto stolen lands, onto, onto places in which their labor was being used by these agricultural companies to dispossess indigenous people, for example. Like there's all these different kinds of contradictions and conflicts, right, behind what seems to be just a bunch of young men going off to adventure. And hopefully trying to let the reader sit with the discomfort of reinterpreting Philippine history as a plantation history, mm -hmm. as a history, history of capitalism, um, is something that we writers have to do as well yeah. in our work and not just as scholars. Your research follows the movement of people from northern Luzon across various geographies and time periods as we've, we've mm -hmm. already discussed. Um, what were some of the most surprising connections or stories you uncovered in tracing uh, the Filipino as a racial category through these movements? One of my favorite moments that was surprising is somebody going to Montana. We never think about Montana when we think about Asian American history, no. <laughs> right? Or Asian migrant history in general. There was a man named Juan Mendoza, his wife Rosalia Mendoza, who he brought after. He first moved to Seattle and he did the whole migrant worker thing going up to Alaska, California, etc. Then he brought his wife from the Philippines. She gone on the boat with him and he said, okay, like, I'm kind of settled in Seattle, but we don't have to stay here. And she says, I really don't want to stay in Seattle. It's wet, it's cold, it's rainy, and I can't grow my vegetables. And she says this in the interview. 
I, 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 I want to grow a garden. So they moved to Missoula, Montana. And it turns out there, there's this tiny Filipino community that's starting to burgeon, like burgeoning Filipino community in Montana. Um, that's mostly working in mines, on farms and railroads. And this guy, Juan Mendoza, um, was actually the chauffeur for hire at the local hotel. Though It was called like the Wilma Hotel. And I wrote this passage in the book that tried to like depict what their life must have been like, how strange it must have been for Montana settlers to come and see a Filipino household because it was also illegal for Filipinos to like have citizenship and, and own property. So how do these guys have property? Well, they named, they put the house's name under their daughter who was born in the US. Mm -hmm. So they found a loophole and they bought this house and they grew mung beans, they grew bitter melon, they grew like all these like Ilocano vegetables um, while working for the local hotel or while going to school, for example. And it's those like really surprising moments that like, for somebody who has studied and has taught Asian American history, we often take for granted that most of these histories happened in somewhere like California. There are a lot of hella Asians in California, Washington State, British Columbia, right? And that's by design. But then you get these like surprising moments where you have people making it work elsewhere. And I wanted to write extensively about that instead of just say, oh, they went to Montana for a little bit and then they left. No, 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 no. these guys lived in Montana. Nobody thinks about Montana. I never planned to think about Montana. Mm -hmm. I love Montana now, conceptually. I would never live there, <laughs> right? But um, it was just one of those things where it's like, right, they really they really made it work. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's really interesting and uh, that you really delve into their experiences in Montana too um, and not just touched on, oh yeah, they went to Montana, um, but right. they really lived there and they established themselves there. And a garden, like that, I wrote yeah. a lot about that random garden <laughs> i i was really invested in this thing because i was like because their reasoning was i never expected this they said the climate of montana except in the winter is much closer to the locos <laughs> than seattle was and i was like what yeah. cool right the hot summers the mm -hmm. humid summers things like that and it seemed actually like okay it was perfect and it's like on it's on the base of a mountain it's montana mm -hmm. right and I'm like, right, it must have reminded you of Northern Luzon. And like, mm -hmm. again, right, like going back to an early part of our conversation, it's like, these were the kinds of things that they were looking for to try to recreate some kind of ecology for themselves because this is what they knew in the Philippines. Yeah. And that doesn't go away just because you land in North America, mm -hmm. right? You take all of these inherited geographies and ecologies and, and, and subjugated knowledges with you that when these migrants are making it work, sometimes they'll make it, they'll make it work by going somewhere where nobody would expect him to live. Yeah, 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 exactly. How do you see the themes of indigeneity discussed in your book applying or resonating in the Canadian context? Great question. This is something that, that the scholar Eve Tuck, who was formerly at Toronto and will yeah. be my colleague at NYU soon, mentioned, which is the way that national contexts often reduce indigenous peoples to ethnic minorities is actually a way of dispossessing them. And indigeneity, as the Canadian context actually teaches us, could be racialized, but indigeneity is not necessarily race. Mm -hmm. Indigeneity and settler colonialism are relationships with place and land and the original stewards of that land. And it actually was so much easier and cl more clarifying to understand how indigeneity in Asia and in the Asian diaspora works because I studied in Canada. 
It's mm-hmm. it's not just like Philippine indigeneity teaches us a lot about like indigeneity in Canada, indigenous politics in Canada. It's that indigenous politics in Canada were what in, were informing me in thinking about indigeneity in Asia. I'll give you one example. Um, in northern Luzon, as in places like you know southern Ontario with Idle No More and the settler colonization around pipelines, there's actually a long history both in Southeast Asia and also like on this side of the world of indigenous people trying to interrupt the development of infrastructure and the smooth flow of capital. And a lot of the way that anti-indigenous violence and settler colonial violence by these settler states is shaped is because they come to see indigenous people as in the way of the development of pipelines, of freeways, um, and things like that, right? And so one of the things that's really interesting right now is that the University of, of the Philippines in Baguio, which is um, you know, on indigenous land, an indigenous place, an indigenous school, they're, they're really strengthening their, their programs in indigenous studies, and it is being supported by indigenous studies programs from Canada. Mm. So the conversation is actually really direct. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's much more productive, I think, than the way that Native American studies and history has articulated indigeneity's position to the United States nation. And the Canadian context actually helped me move towards a more global perspective of indigenous politics. And the fact that like, I was able to really think about, you know, um, things like Standing Rock, which I wrote about in the conclusion, and its relationship to Indigenous peoples trying to stop the building of a hydroelectric dam mm-hmm. in um, during martial law in the Philippines. That's a direct connection in which we can think about indigeneity not just as this sort of ahistorical, out of time, out of place kind of figure, but as something that is always going to be there to interrupt all the myths of capitalism and national formation and things like that. I really appreciate you saying that um, your um, your training in in Canada has informed all of your um, exceptional work. Um, you present a new vision of the U.S. Pacific Empire centered on uh, natives and migrants deeply involved in colonialism and its unraveling. Can you expand on how this perspective shifts our understanding of history and the role of these communities in shaping it? The discipline of history was formed and shaped around a fetishism for something called the archive. Like you hear the archive and it's like like right now we're in the visitors room of Massey College, which both has the college archives mm-hmm. and is an archive unto itself. There's a sort of magical quality about the myth that we are able to interact with the past in the present by reading about it. I wanted to demystify the archive and the book is a history of the archive and it's a history about of all the all the ways that the archive and colonial knowledge formation shape the popular ideas we have about race and the ways that people move Um, and I wanted to insist that in the creation of an imperial archive we too can find the different ways that native people migrant people colonized subjects both participate but also resist or create their own archives that Mm -hmm. the archive itself can be both the site through which we can think about the histories of race and racial capitalism and things like that but also as a site that is always going to be contested Mm -hmm. in struggle um it's why i'm investing in community archives and those community archives which are both central to the writing of asian american filipino american history specifically but also are incredibly underfunded like they're in a church basement Mm 
right? Um, prone to flooding, the preservation is not very good, and they're kept alive. They're kept intact by a 92-year-old archivist named Dorothy Cordova, um, who was one of my mentors. And thinking about her work in relation to and against and in conversation with these state archives was really important in that it is important to know that native and colonized people and subjugated people both counter knowledge produced about them but produce knowledge about themselves and for me that was really important to center even more than it was important to center the nation and the nation state and how I wrote about Filipino American history. Mm -hmm. My last question is uh, looking ahead how do you envision your future projects further exploring and impacting discussions on diaspora, indigeneity and national identity? So Bundok is actually as much as it's my first academic book it's actually the second part of a triptych of works and these three works are the different ways that I wanted to challenge myself to think about Filipino diaspora and how to tell histories of Filipino diaspora outside of like nationalism and the nation state. So in a lot of ways they're sort of anarchistic histories of the Filipino diaspora. The mm -hmm. first book was my poetry collection mm -hmm. which is called Barangay um, and Barangay means both the basic unit of Philippine social life but it also means an outrigger boat. And that came out in 2021, Bundok came out in 2023, and I wanted to think about Filipino diaspora in relationship to the plantation, to indigeneity, and things like that. The last book of this triptych is called Balikbayan, which means return to the homeland, and it's also the name of a official state program in the Philippines that, 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 that tries to promote you know, middle-class Filipinos in North America to come back home and be tourists in their own homeland, a commodified version. And I thought, okay, as much as I wanted to refuse the Philippine nation-state, it still exists and it still holds power all over the world and in the Philippines, obviously, right? I wanted to write a history of the Philippine nation told through its constitutive outsides, which is how do you write a history of the Philippine nation recognizing the fact that from the onset of the modern nation-state, it was always built to expel people and capture their value and capture their labor. It was from the American colonial period, you get Filipino migrant labor in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, the Philippine nation state, both statecraft but also the sense of nation, was built around reckoning with the fact that most of its population is always primed to leave. And so it's this history of return migration that is then used as a way to tell the history of like the development of the Philippines as a country but as a country that always had to reckon with the fact that it was always already global. Um, so it's called Balakbayan, the invention of the Filipino homeland. I'm also just like trying to get back into like writing like more creatively. I have a essay collection on my first dissertation project idea, which is on food history. Um, and so I'm coming back to that and I'm, I, I have this like proposal for an essay collection on food and colonization, food and migration under review. I also have a memoir about my family's relationship to Filipino martial arts because um, we ran a gym for 20 years in Scarborough um, and I wanted to think about that as a way to tell the history of Filipino migration as it's mediated through like the military, through martial law and through gender and masculinity and sexuality and things like that. I think overall what I can say about my work is I have a real investment in writing these global histories from the perspective of just vernacular life. Mm -hmm. like everyday life in all of its messiness, all of its multiplicities, all of its, you know, we contain multitudes and all that kind of stuff, right? In that native and colonized people and migrant people have something to say about global politics too. Um, and I think that's what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So, yeah.
That's incredible, and uh, we're all very excited to read all of your your upcoming works. Um, and congratulations on your um, uh, on on Bundok and and it's it's and it's a success so far. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, and uh, yeah, we look forward to 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 seeing you again, hopefully here at Massey. It'll be very soon. I'll be on the East Coast, so thank you for having me. Awesome. I've been speaking with Adrian DeLeon, Assistant Professor of U.S. History at New York University, Farley Distinguished Visiting Scholar of History at Simon Fraser University, and author of Bundok, A Hinterland History of Filipino America. My name is Margaret DeLeon. You've been listening to the JCR, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.